We're looking at John chapter 4, verses 1 to 26. Good morning, all. Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town called, in Samaria called Sisha, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, and we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. 
for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Thank you for the word of God. Uh, Let me ask you a question this morning. What do you think it would be like to meet Jesus? Just think for a second. What would it actually be like to meet Jesus in the flesh? Awesome, amazing. I'm hearing words being said. It would be incredible, wouldn't it? Uh, you know, us, us living 2,000 years further on from when Jesus physically walked the earth, and we can often think of him as this person from history who is real and we believe in him, but we sometimes don't always think about the fact that he met these real people, that real people did encounter him, that he is a fact of history, and he did indeed walk this earth, and he did miracles, and he spoke to people, and he taught people. What would he say to you? What would he say to you? And you know what? I know that one day I will meet him. <laughs> if we put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior in law, we get this incredible privilege of being able to meet Jesus ourselves and say, you're my Savior, you're my Lord, and we can talk with him. That will be incredible. And, and, but I do wonder, you know, as we look at Jesus and his stories in the gospel, what it was that drew people to him like a magnet when he taught, when he spoke, when he encountered them? What drew them to him, wanting to know more about him? What was it about him? And and yes, there are miracles, these incredible signs of the power of God that always draw people. You can understand why, can't you, if something miraculous were to happen. And we reflected last week that uh, John wrote these encounters because he wanted to make clear a point that the Apostle Paul would make a bit later on uh, in his second letter to the people at Corinth. Therefore, if anyone is is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. The miracles that he was performing, they were the signs that that was true. Something new is happening. Something new is taking place. It's something that has not happened in this way before. I am changing everything. You know, and it's not that we, you know, we particularly expect multitudes of miracles today, that they do happen. God wonderfully moves in power today. But in Jesus' time, as he performed them, they were to say, something new's going on here, guys. You need to sit up and pay attention. I'm doing something new among you. The miracles make the point. What about his teaching? Well, we read in Mark 1 that the people were amazed. As they heard the words that he spoke, they were amazed by him. Amazed that he spoke as one who had authority. 
A lot of the teachers of the day would go around with their kind of sermons and everything and they would say, oh, well, I make this point and I, and I, and I say it in light of Rabbi so-and-so who said such and uh, Rabbi this and that said this about it. And that's the way they did their teaching. Jesus stands up on his own and says, no, I'm speaking on my own authority to you. He's the son of God. He can do it. Maybe it was his, his conviction, the concern with which he treated people. Each is an individual. Each is their own way. He knew them inside out. And maybe it was because he was just so very, very countercultural for his time. He stuck out like a sore thumb in some of what he did. And that's exactly where we meet him in chapter 4 of John's Gospel. You know, we, we see him breaking the barriers as we enter our passage. Uh, the, the contrast between John chapter 4 and what we see in John chapter 3 couldn't be more stark. We didn't cover John chapter 3 uh, in this series. We're not doing all of the encounters we had with him. But um, John chapter 3 was with a man called Nicodemus. Uh, in Jerusalem. And Nicodemus was part of the Jewish ruling council. He was the, part of the religious elite. He was, he was well-to-do in society, highly devout. If anyone was from the in-crowd of the time, it would have been someone like him. Someone who knew what to say, knew what to do, accepted by all, Perhaps even put on a pedestal at times. And John tells him that he's got to still come before God and be a word that we don't, a phrase that we don't use so much these days, but he's got to be born again. He's got to be born again. He tells Nicodemus, you must be renewed. You've got to be transformed. It's by the Spirit and by God's grace that this new way is coming about now. It is new. And you need that if you want to live for God. He tells them that most famous of verses in the Bible that we often cling on to as Christians. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That was to Nicodemus, the religious man, the rule, part of the ruling council. Because he was doing something new. But you know, we, we go into chapter 4 of John's Gospel, and you probably couldn't be farther away from that picture than what happens here, okay? Farther from being part of the in crowd. I mean, first of all, Jesus has now traveled to Samaria. Um, second of all, he's talking directly to a lady, um, a lady with a checkered past, no less. And third, to someone who had all sorts of questions about religious differences and uh, between the Samaritans and the Jews. I mean, this is no more cozy Jerusalem with its clear lines. This is the opposite end of the spectrum. And yet you notice that Jesus feels just at home, standing next to a well in this encounter, as he does with this ruling elite in Jerusalem. You notice that about Jesus, don't you? He's at home anywhere, talking to anyone. 
Do you know, there's a reason why on the, on the well, I suppose you could call it publicity, that we've, we've put the words, oh, there's something there. Uh, you, you're welcome, okay? You're welcome. Because that is true, and it needs to be true. It's what's true about this encounter. Um, that slogan is genuine. You know, anyone I hope is welcome in this place to come and hear the Word of God and the Gospel preached. You know, some feel they can't come to church because, you know, of their, of their past or their religion or circumstances or perhaps because of their, their culture or even race or, or lifestyle or background. Jesus proves he is willing to relate to absolutely anybody, anybody at all, particularly anyone who's seeking genuine answers to the really big questions of life. And what it's all about, regardless of their background. Not everyone will like what they hear, of course not. We come to Jesus with all sorts of problems and questions. The Word of God is challenging on all sorts of levels. I mean, it challenges us who have been Christians for years and years and years, doesn't it? We're all here to be challenged. But all are welcome to come and sit and listen. If we're going to reach a needy world, we've got to be prepared for that. Some messiness in the nursery. Because that the way, that's the way that nurseries are, aren't they? As people encounter the living God and hear his ways for themselves. Uh, take this situation with Jesus. So in those days, Jews and Samaritans did not mix. Uh, if, I put a, if the map goes on the screen, uh, Samaria itself was between uh, the south in the region of Judea and Galilee in the north. And Jesus was heading up towards Galilee itself. A lot of Jews, when they were traveling in that direction, disliked Samaria so much that they would go right round, miles out of the way. I don't know if this is, uh, you're able to see this on the screen now, it's too bright anyway. Um, but they went right round the edge, right round the other side of the River Jordan up to Galilee because they didn't want to cross through the region of, region of Samaria. When the Assyrians conquered Samaria, but they didn't get as far as Jerusalem, they deported some of the inhabitants and settled uh, foreigners among the Jews that remained so that they intermarried. And effectively, in the eyes of the Jews of the time, the Samaritans came, I know it's not politically correct for today's terms, but they became, to their eyes, half-breeds. They were not accepted because of their circumstances. They were neither Jewish nor foreigner. And that barrier had remained for generations and generations. Even today, there's something of that feeling, though, though most of the Samaritans have all but disappeared. But, but what do we read? Verse 4, now Jesus had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar or Sychar or, or however it's pronounced. Near the plot of ground, Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well and it was about noon. And it's here that he meets this Samaritan lady. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan, and a Samaritan lady no less. How can you ask me for a drink? That doesn't work. Surely this doesn't work. Jesus, what are you doing? Who is this strange Israelite Jewish man who's asking me for a drink? 
How can that be possible? It doesn't work, she's basically saying. We discover, first of all, Jesus is willing to cross cultural and racial lines that in the day were not to be crossed. We discover he was willing to cross gender lines with this lady. Jewish men, if you didn't know, Jewish men weren't even supposed to greet or talk to another lady in public who wasn't, who wasn't their wife. You weren't supposed to mention a word at all in the culture. Didn't happen, let alone a Samaritan lady in public. This just was not what should take place. And of course, she, she was a lady with a, with a reputation. It was why she was out there in the heat of the day at noon to avoid the other women of the town as she collected her water. She'd have five husbands, now live with a man who wasn't her husband. I mean, the local tabloids, you know what tabloids are like? You know, the local tabloids would have had a field day about all of this. And you can imagine the headlines the following morning, if they'd have cottoned on to what was going on here. Woman of ill repute meets preacher from Nazareth, alone, by the well, complete with long-lensed paparazzi photograph of what was going on. You can imagine what the tabloids would have done in this instance. None of this should have worked. All of it was totally ill-advised. And yet it's here we find Jesus the Son of God. Point one, Jesus broke barriers, risking reputation, all to reach the last, the least, and the lost. Challenges us, doesn't it? Makes us think what barriers we, to, we put up before other people whatever the circumstances might be. It's challenging. We should be saying to all, you're welcome, even if things get a bit messy as a result. Now, being the master of outreach, Jesus perfectly sets up how this encounter should play out. He knows the astonishment the lady will express at his request. Will you give me a drink? How can you, a Jewish man, ask me, a Samaritan lady, for a drink? She replies. Remember, she's the vulnerable one here. At remote location, on her own, she's the one at risk. And yet the strangeness of this encounter and what goes on opens up a conversation in the midst of what shouldn't have happened... It opens up a conversation that is going to change her life. And not just her life, but the life of the whole town in which she lives that for the period of time should never have been reached. But you know, it's not just that she's reached. There's a definite purpose that he does this, as he shows in the next section in point two. We see him breaking the boundaries, but we also see him penetrating the heart. Verse 10, this is Jesus' response. Jesus answered her, If you knew, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. 
Now, if there's one thing that you're going to get that's going to pique your interest, that's going to grab your attention, that's going to draw you like a fish hook as to what is possibly going to happen next, that's a pretty good way of, of bringing this in. Particularly in his day, a culture that is soaked with religiosity and awaiting a Messiah to come, it is a highly provocative thing to say, all of what he's just said. I mean, here is a lady out in the heat of the day collecting water because she wanted to avoid the other ladies of the town. They would have all done it much earlier. She is ostracized. She is alone in her society. Who wouldn't want just some water but living water that wouldn't, want, wouldn't, wouldn't run dry, whatever this living water might be, which, of course, she doesn't know yet. But it's living water. Surely you would want that. must be better than whatever's at the bottom of the well he's standing next to. But she says to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? What is it? Where can you get it? Where can I find it? Because I want it. Sounds good. Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? Now, if you're beginning to drop names like people do, you know when people want to make a big point about something, they name drop, don't they? They give a little name about the person they've met. Oh, I met so-and-so, and he said this. And oh, I met this person, didn't it make me sound good? She says, well, Jacob, okay, let's mention him for, for a moment. Jacob was a big name to drop in the ancient world, particularly in the Old Testament. This lady is not messing about here with the comparison. One of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you remember those names? Um, Jacob had 12 sons who became the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. There's no messing about here. She goes straight to that point. Are you greater, you strange Israelite man who's standing before me, are you greater than even Jacob who dug this well all those years ago? Patriarch, head of those 12 sons who became the 12 tribes. It'd be like an American president saying, you know, oh, I, well, I'm, I'm greater than Abraham Lincoln or, or George Washington. You'd have to take great care to, uh, care to claim to be better than them. But of course, the point is being made that John is making by writing about all of that is that this person who is standing before her is greater than all of those people. He's greater still. She doesn't know it yet, but he's greater than anyone they will have ever have known before, even the person who dug the well. If there's one person who can claim to be better, he's standing there right in front of her. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And she doesn't even know it yet. Jesus is Amazing. Now Jesus answers, Everyone who drinks this water in the well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Sounds good, doesn't it? Better than having to draw up a bucket from a well every single time you want a bit of water. A living spring inside that wells up water to eternal life. That sounds wonderfully refreshing. You know, better than Evian or whatever it might be. 
Better than anything you get out of a tap. Spring of water inside sounds pretty good to me. Never thirsting again. In fact, when I was out in um, Israel, uh, when I was at, at Moreland's College, I did in fact get to see the spring, uh, a form of spring anyway, where they believe the source for the, the River Jordan came from. I think it was a picture of the uh, River Jordan uh, that might appear on the screen. Hopefully if it's there. There it is. <laughs> There's the River Jordan. Um, Known in its day as the mighty River Jordan, it's a bit smaller now, but um, in, in its day it was known as the mighty River Jordan all those years ago. Um, you, you see how vast it is even there, even the photographs that you can, take if you, you can take if you went to the land now. But where it came from was quite different. Go on to the next slide. Hopefully. Anyway, the spring that it came from, is up, or the main spring anyway that it came from, was up near a place called Dan in the north of, um, in the north of Israel. Uh, just a very, very small str- street, uh, spring that bubbles away. And what you can see, oh, there it is, there it is, behind those pile of stones. Uh, just a little spring that, that is over in the bushes somewhere, kind of remote and out of the way if you go and visit Dan. Um, it's the main tributary to the River Jordan and where they think the, 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 the source of it truly is. And yet it's this small spring that bubbles away. Of course, you go downstream, what happens? It turns into this river. The mighty Jordan River, they call it. Streams of living water welling up from a spring. And that's the kind of image that you get with what Jesus is saying here. We'd all want something like that to stop it running dry. And that river is the main source of water right the way through the country. And that's why the lady thinks Jesus is talking about anyway. She says, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She's getting the implication, even if she's missing the application of what he's saying. She doesn't get quite that it's about eternal life yet. She thinks it's about water. But Jesus is okay with that for now because he knows what is yet to come. He starts from his place of need, asking her for a drink. He then makes an offer to meet a far deeper need that she has, this spring that bubbles up inside to eternal life. And what, of course, he's offering her is the Spirit of God living water that will change her life forever. Not just give her a refreshing drink in the desert. She misunderstands, but she still wants the practical, life-giving water to overcome the difficulty she's got with collecting it every single day. Which is when Jesus, which is when He, the Lord of Lords, does what he does with every single one of us. Gently, genuinely, not condescendingly, but respectfully, he asks the question that he knows will penetrate her heart deeper still. He says to her, go call your husband and come back. I came across a great quote a while ago um, from a Christian author, Max Lucado, um, and he once wrote this. 
He said, if our greatest needs had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. And if our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness. So who did God send? God sent us a saviour. You see, Jesus knows. He knows all about this lady's past, and he knows her current situation too. He knows the sin that has ostracized her from society. Ultimately, it's hurt her and is a barrier between her and God. Now, she's had five husbands, and she's, she's living with a man basically as if they were married. And in the culture, you know, multiple marriages, one after another, were not totally frowned upon. In a culture where uh, a certificate of divorce could be issued by a man to his wife almost for any reason, it could just pretty much be done, divorce was common. Jesus spoke out about that practice, in fact, in the Gospels, heightening the place of marriage in society and culture, something we need to do in today's world. Uh, mortality rates, of course, were much higher in those days, too, through, through illness or war. And even then, to be an unmarried lady meant that it was much harder to be provided for unless you had wider family to take care of you. Even so, it's said that um, rabbis of the day taught that they, they suggested that uh, three marriages was a, a reasonable limit, so they thought, um, as if you could quantify such things. Uh, we, we don't know why this lady had had five husbands, but the implication is that's rather a lot. And if nothing else, her current circumstances, Jesus gently reveals are not right. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. You see, the way Jesus works with us is that he's always gracious. He's always gentle. He's always loving, but he is always to the point as well. And he is to all of us about all sorts of things. He's not harsh, thankfully, and not dismissive, but gently uncovering her point of shame so that she can be restored from it. We, we don't know why her choice was made. Maybe she was desperate. Maybe this man offered to provide for her. Certainly she was willing to give up her reputation to be in this relationship. Maybe she had just decided it was easier to live this way, having had five previous husbands. We, we don't know. We're not told, so we can't say. But clearly what Jesus was doing was showing her that the offer of living water meant a change of heart as well. It meant a change of heart. It always does. And Jesus will always cleanse a genuine heart. Whatever her reasons, uh, the Jewish man she'd encountered at the well was already unlike anyone else she had ever encountered, offering her acceptance that no one else was showing her. Able to tell her life story without condemning her. Probing very personal aspects. 
that would make anyone feel uncomfortable, and yet no one does it in the way that Jesus does it. It's grace-filled. It's gently. It's lovely. Whilst never watering down what repentance and faith really mean. I mean, he did it with the rich young man. If you think back to that story, his question to Jesus was much more direct. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Go and sell all you have and give it to the poor, then come follow me. That was the man's barrier. And grace is a costly grace. He went away sad because he wasn't prepared to give up his wealth to follow Jesus. We have to ask the question of ourselves, whatever it may be, what's our barrier? What's our barrier? We don't ever want to get into that position when Jesus has been so good to us as the Samaritan lady is slowly discovering in her encounter with the King of Kings. Now, for now, she, she, she avoids the implication because either she doesn't want to face that quite yet and changes the subject, or, or more likely, she just wants to better understand who this man is. Why can he say these things? How does he know these things, her past and her present? She can tell that something more is going on here, something she needs to wrestle with further. So we get to point three. She asks a question, and we see Jesus opening the way. And questions are useful, aren't they? They are useful. You know, I like people asking questions about faith, about the Bible, because questions get to the nub of the issue at at hand. The problems people have with following Jesus or or things they're not sure about. I, I like that. We're all on this journey of faith at different points. We've all got questions. I have too. So this lady follows Jesus's observation with a question about worship. You can see this encounter slowly but surely narrowing down, narrowing down towards a particular point. Verse 19, sir, the woman said, I can see you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. It's interesting, isn't it, how a question about lifestyle turns into a question about proper worship. It's funny how those two things carry on from one another. There is a link. She wants to know what Jesus is really getting at. And if he is as sure as he seems to be, he'll be able to answer this question about where worship should really take place. In fact, that question raged for centuries. The Samaritans had even built a rival temple up on a mountain nearby um, uh, to rival that of Jerusalem. That They only, in fact, saw the first five books of the Bible, what we call the Pentateuch, as the authoritative scriptures. They didn't hold on to any of the other Old Testament books as proper scripture. Conveniently missing out, of course, those books talking about the, the building of the temple in Jerusalem. And they were barred from going there anyway due to their status. So what do you do? You build your own temple. (laughs) You build your own temple up on a mountain and worship there instead. That's what they did. And the woman wants to know of him. Has that debate got any basis to it? If you're a prophet, Jesus, if you really are this prophet and can tell me what I should do with my life, you must be able to answer the age-old question of where worship should take place. And here is how Jesus brilliantly responds, painting the reality of this new way that John's gospel is all about describing to us. 
Verse 21, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. After all, they they only believe the first five books of the Bible. They didn't read the rest of them. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come, hint, hint, I'm standing right in front of you, When the true worshippers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshippers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. What was He saying? What He's saying, do you know what? Worship isn't going to be about any kind of location in future. There's enough in the New Testament that we can know that Jesus prioritizes God's people gathering, living in community with one another, to know that we're, we're not to be lone ranger Christians, we're to be part of a fellowship. But the question of location is a moot point. True worship isn't going to depend upon a temple in Jerusalem. It's not going to depend if it's up on Mount Gerizim where they used to meet. True worship will depend on a changed spirit, on the truth of God's Word. It won't be any location. It won't be by not knowing whom you worship either. The truth will be known. The Samaritans' failing is that they had abandoned the full testimony of God available at the time. They didn't truly know who they were worshipping. But Jesus says, but you will. You will. A changed spirit, a renewed truth, that'll get you to worship. That'll be the means of worship. Uh, The book of Hebrews would describe in a passage that is just so laden with uh, truths about Jesus and his sacrifice and his priestly role in bringing us back to God. The writer of Hebrews tells us, chapter 10, verse 19 and following, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled, to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. It's not going to be by a temple someplace, somewhere, or by a ritual that you have to perform, but by a living faith, a sprinkled conscience that we can draw near. That's the way to God. That's the way to worship him. That's the way back to his presence through Jesus Christ, the most wonderful of truths that we can ever accept and live by. I mean, just think in that passage, the promise of cleansing, the promise of being washed by water. The whole passage is replete with references about water. 
all of those truths were coming into being at the arrival and work of this Messiah that they were all waiting for and longing for. And Jesus tells this to a lady in a desert next to a well who's got a past, who he's not supposed to be talking to, in the people who are supposed to be cut off. Which gets us to our final heading, because clearly the lady is following all this carefully, you can see where this is all heading, with this unusual man she's just met and had a conversation with. Because what Jesus does is he reveals the Christ. She's got there. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus replies, I am he. I'm standing right in front of you. I am he. The one who will make all this possible. See, this is the point about Jesus and his encounters. This is her personal encounter with Jesus Christ. The one expected from long ago and has now arrived. He crossed the boundaries, asked her for a drink, and she discovered he was the savior of the world. Jesus is deeply personal with you and me. He knows our whole lives. We, 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 there's nothing to be hidden, is there? <laughs> he knows our whole lives. And yet, he comes to us and says, I will give you living water. I will wash you clean. I will make you new. And I will enable you to worship the great God of the universe yourself by my spirit and through my truth. And you can see what effect this has on the lady. We haven't got time to go through the rest of the passage, but you can see the effect that takes place. She drops her water jar. <laughs> she runs back to the town in which she's come from. She begins saying to people in the town, these other Samaritans, come and see the man who told me everything about my life. They go, what? <laughs> what are you saying? They go out and meet Jesus. They hear from him. They see what he's got to say. The Samaritans come to believe in him because of what the lady said, and he stayed with them for a couple of days. More barriers broken. Jesus is doing a new thing. And what is their conclusion about it? Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. First of all, she becomes the first evangelist in Samaria. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. Because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe. Remember, they're talking to the lady again now. Look at what it's done for her. She's back in the community once more because of all of this. We no longer believe just because of what you have said. Now we have heard it for ourselves, and we know that this man, conclusion, really is the Savior of the world. Samaritans were saying that. They weren't supposed to say that. 
But they met Jesus. And he changed everything. So what are we to take away in conclusion? What are we to learn? (laughs) One, goodness. (laughs) Jesus welcomes all to hear and be challenged by him. No exceptions. From the elite of society to the lowly and downtrodden, his compassion is for all and all are welcome. Number two. Living water is what he offers us too. It's what he offers us. Better than anything this world can offer. Better than any lifestyle that would take us away from him. He knows our need, our past and our present, and he draws us to follow him in every aspect of our lives so that we can worship him by by our spirit, through his spirit, and in truth because by faith he now lives in us. Number three, he calls us, to worship him in spirit and in truth. It's a matter of heart and substance. It's not a a sort of mysterious, mythological faith. It has real substance to it. It's heart and truth, heart and substance, not superficiality or religiosity. He's the only way. Relationship with him, the only way. We have to come to him on his terms when he calls. And number four, <laughs> and, and this lady is a fantastic example of this. There is no greater example of a, of, of a witness than for those who encounter him that are changed by him to go and tell others about him. I mean, what a changed life this lady has. The legacy of the woman at the well is that changed in a renewed status, all because Jesus went to her and met her where she was at. And so do you know what? Wherever we're at today, whatever we're going through, whatever we might feel, whatever might be happening in our lives, Jesus too is going to meet you where he's at, where we're, where we're at. doesn't push us away. The only people who push ourselves away push us away are ourselves. He welcomes us in, calls us to himself, and says, Come worship me in spirit and in truth. So let's in these moments just reflect on what we've heard, and then I'll pray for us. What's God speaking to you about this morning? What does he want to build up in you, encourage you with, challenge you with? What is it he's laying by his spirit on your heart? Let's let him just speak to us for a moment in our hearts and minds, and then I'll pray. Father, we do thank you that you are the God who crossed all barriers and all borders to reach us. 
We thank you that this encounter is a wonderful example of the way in which you do that for each and every one of us, whatever our circumstances might be, that there are no barriers with you. We thank you that it is by faith we can know you, that you draw us and woo us and call us to be your children to live your ways, to accept you as our Savior and Lord, and then to live by, by your Spirit and through your truth for your glory. We thank you for the most awesome of privileges that that brings into our lives. This wasn't just an encounter 2,000 years ago, but that it is real for us too, because you are the living God who in Jesus has spoken to us and draws near to us. And so I pray for each and every one of us, be it here in the building or listening online, that you would bless us, that you would challenge us and provoke us, that you'd help us to know your grace and your acceptance, and that you would push us forwards in our discipleship to live more in line with your ways as we learn and grow. Would you challenge us to be a people who are willing to cross boundaries, borders, to reach the unlovely and unloved? Would you help us to look with eyes of compassion and grace upon others? Would you help us, Lord, to hold on to the truth of your word as we do so in a very, very mixed up world? And ultimately, Lord, we pray that you would fill us with those living waters that you promise. That the wells of salvation would bubble up inside of us. That we can draw ourselves closer and closer to you. That we can grow to become more like you and to know you better. That our relationship with you would be stronger. That we would be encouraged in our walk, Lord God. And as we go into a new week, whatever this new week may look like, that we can know your presence with us because your spirit goes with us wherever we are. And I want to just pray for anyone who They've never made that commitment. They've never said, Jesus, you are my Savior and my Lord. You died for me, for my sin, and you rose to bring new life into my life. Lord, I pray that you would be that comforting and yet challenging, drawing presence that you may help them, help any in this hearing to draw upon those wells of salvation themselves because you offer it freely and give it so graciously. We thank you, Lord, for all you do in our lives. And in Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen.